Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, Three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on him, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Melanie, for reading that passage for us this morning. I love this section of the book of Acts where we have a lot of um, narrative transition happening. You have... Peter and James and John, who have been kind of out in front leading the, uh, the witness for Christ in Jerusalem and Judea. And now it's starting to spread as the Apostle Paul uh, has converted to Christianity from his position of, of uh, really per- persecuting the church. Uh, and you're starting to see here now, and we talked about this last week, we're starting to see how the gospel is reaching into Gentile communities, and one of the big questions that this is kind of raising for everybody at the time, because uh, frankly, it's, it's up to this point been, been an unanswered question for a lot of people, and that is, in order to convert to Christ, do you have to convert to Judaism first? And so we talked about that at length last week. Um, but, but what we get here is a little bit of a flashback. Um, so last week we talked about Peter preaching the gospel at Cornelius' house, and we looked at that sermon that he preached there. Today is when he kind of gives the, exa- the, the, the story of how that all came to be. And so we're actually going back in time just a little bit. Uh, but, but the question that I wanted to open with <clears throat> is, and I want you to think honestly about this, because my, my guess is that for most of us, we, we would answer in the positive and it's the question this, are there any displays of God's grace toward 
either yourself or others that upset you, <laughs> that you just feel like that, that's, a, that's a bit much. Uh, I think we have, us, we have it in us to do that. So as we come to Acts 11, let me give you a little historical context. About a decade has passed since the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So about, about two, 10 years since the beginning of the establishment of the early church in Jerusalem. So not a long time, right? So it's 22 now, so this would have been like 2012. Uh, so not that long ago. But what's been happening is the gospel has been spreading throughout the region and the church has been growing. And in Acts 10, through Peter, a centurion named Cornelius, a Gentile, and his entire household came to faith in Christ. And it was amazing because the gospel had never been proclaimed and so definitively received by Gentiles up until this point. And Cornelius's conversion caused such a stir that some people wanted to hear about this amazing development. They just like, I, I got to hear the story. But others just couldn't imagine God showing grace to Gentile people. And so when Peter returned to Jerusalem, what we find is we find him being asked to give an apology for the grace of God being shown to Gentiles. And that's what raises the question I started us with. Is there any part of God's grace that is upsetting to you? That God would, would extend grace in a way that just feels to you like that's not fair? The great irony, of course, being that Fair is not what grace is about, right? Grace is, is, is God doing something good in our lives uh, in spite of what would have been fair. You ever heard the expression, I'll just stay and hold down the fort? Uh, it's an expression I've used a hundred times. It, really what it is, it's just a way of saying, right, that I'll just stay here and I'll maintain whatever there is to maintain and basically just do that, not do anything else. I won't upset the status quo. And as we look at today's text, I want to ask the question, are you as a Christian approaching the Christian life in that way? You're just holding down the fort. In other words, are you basically doing nothing except trying to maintain what already exists? The reason I ask this question is because in our passage, we see a group of people who are holding down the fort while God is on the move. That group would be the circumcision party. Uh, that name, the Circumcision Party, refers to a group of people who believed that you needed to convert to Judaism in order that to then convert to Christianity, uh, because circumcision was a part of converting to Judaism. Uh, and so this would be the group that would say you have to convert to Judaism first in order to convert to Christianity, hence the Circumcision Party. God is, is in the process of transforming everything. When we're reading this passage, he's transforming everything. He's extending his grace to all manner of people from every corner of the world. Peter, Barnabas, Philip, hundreds of others are out there on the edge and they're doing things that they never dreamed that they would do. God is working through them. Through their hands, God is healing. Through their words, God is converting through their prayers, God is intervening, and through their suffering, God is building his church. But there's a group of professing Christians who cannot accept that God would actually regard Gentiles in the same way that he does the Jewish people. And so as those who are holding down the fort, what they're demanding from Peter 
is they're demanding that he explain this disruption to the status quo. Notice how Peter responds to his critics. He doesn't blast them for questioning his apostolic authority. Instead, what he does is he just humbly describes what happened. Why? Why is this his approach? It's because he's been humbled in this process. He's humble because what God did in Joppa was surprising even to him. He didn't know how this was going to go. Peter had to learn a new paradigm for himself, that in Christ there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Not only were people able to come to Christ without first converting to Judaism, but there was also to only be one church to which both Jew and Gentile belonged. This was a major paradigm shift for everybody. And so Peter tells the story. He tells the story of what happened. And what he does in the process of telling the story is he highlights four main divine encounters that stress that what transpired there in Joppa was something that God did. It wasn't something that he did. It was something that God did. So what are those four main divine encounters? There's a divine vision, a divine command, a divine preparation, and a divine action. I'm going to go through these really quickly. Uh, There's the divine vision. This is in verses 4 through 10. Peter describes the vision that he had on Simon the Tanner's roof of this sheet of animals being lowered, filled with clean and unclean animals. And the Lord told Peter to take and eat. And Peter says that he looked closely, meaning he was paying attention to what was happening. And he understood that the clean and the unclean animals were symbolic of the entire world. And God told him, what I have cleansed, don't ever call that common. And that vision, that divine vision in 4 through 10, frames what comes next. And that is a divine command. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Immediately after the vision... Peter is given this divine command to go with the men who had been sent from Joppa to find him. And so Peter and six others, witnesses to everything that had happened there, did as the Lord commanded them. He's telling the story. And then in verses 13 and 14, he talks about this divine preparation that was happening for this encounter. As Peter and the others entered Cornelius' house... Peter discovers that God had been working on Cornelius' end of things too. He'd been divinely preparing them to hear the gospel that Peter would proclaim. And so to Peter's amazement, God had been preparing each for the other here. And again, God's hand was evident. And so Peter preached, which led to the fourth Divine encounter, and this is a divine action that happened, something God did in verses 15 and 17. You see it, as Peter preached, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were gathered there. And Peter makes the connection that what the Holy Spirit did there was just like how the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. It was just like it. So from beginning to end, God was the one blazing this trail. Peter's critics were were silenced. As he concluded, he said this, he said, If then God gave the same gift 
to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's evidence made the prosecution rest, at least for a while. We know this is not the last time this issue is going to come up. Some among them would revert again to the idea that Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism first in order to be saved. But at least on this occasion, when they heard what Peter had said, they glorified God. One of the lessons for us here is we have to be careful never to call or imply that someone is unclean when God does not say that. And we have to be humble enough to know that we are capable of doing that. That we're capable of regarding a certain subset of people as somehow less. Less within the reach of God than we are. Who are the circumcision party really upset with here? Because they're upset. Who are they really upset with? Are they upset with Peter for sharing a table with Gentiles? Or are they upset with the Gentiles for letting him share a table with him? In, 15, or sorry, in 1952, the Anglican Bible translator J.B. Phillips, maybe you've heard of the Phillips translation of the Bible, J.B. Phillips, he wrote this little book. I highly recommend that you find it and you read it. It's fantastic and very clarifying. Uh, but the book is called Your God is Too Small. And in it, he explores some of the false or at least incomplete views that we hold of God. Uh, and his big categories are we see God either as a, a resident policeman, as an angry parent, as an old man upstairs, <laughs> or as a managing director of our lives, or as a meek, mild, pale Galilean. And what Phillips does in this book is he doesn't just challenge presuppositions. Instead, what he does is he challenges our imagination about God's greatness and how small we think he is. See, the circumcision party isn't primarily upset with Peter. And they're really not primarily upset with the Gentiles either. They're upset with God. They're mad at God. Their small God had done something huge, reaching out to people who were not like them, making it seem so easy for the Gentiles to come to faith when they themselves had worked so hard for so long, keeping so many rules, making sure that the unclean world of the Gentiles didn't defile them. And now that all seems tenuous. L listen, when you work hard for God and you don't get the kind of response that you think you deserve for all the work that you put in, no one is beyond feeling indignant toward him for not rising to the occasion that we wanted. But that's not a vision of a God who is too big. That's a vision of a God who is too small. Is your Jesus too small? Are you, are you spending your energy trying to bring life under control, trying to eliminate surprises, trying to strain the bit and bridle of predictability around the head of the beast that you call life? You're working hard at this. See, often the reason we strive to control our lives is because deep down, what we really want 
is for life to be more or less uneventful. We want to be holding down the fort. We want, when someone says, what's going on, for us to be able to say, not much. Right? That's a happy place for a lot of us to say, not much is going on. And when stuff starts happening and life gets complicated and things are happening that are stripping control from our hands, we demand an explanation from God as to why he would disrupt us like this. What if the reason, what if the reason that God disrupts our rhythm of just holding down the fort is because he wants more from us, is because he wants more out of us, is because he wants more for us? You have one life. I have one life. It's happening now. This is the one we've been given. Often we want to limit what God wants to do in us or around us. But what if, what if the way that we approached life, what if the way we looked at it and said, I've got one. It's happening now. How can I just give it away? How can, how can I spend my life? How can I invest my life rather than just try to maintain And you might look at the book of Acts and think, well, okay, yeah, but he was really active in the book of Acts. We see God all over the place. He's talking to people. They're hearing him. Apparently, they're aware that they're hearing God's voice, that it's the Lord speaking to them. I don't have that experience. And so we think he was active in the book of Acts. He was changing the face of the world. But with my life, I think all he really wants from me is for me just to hold things together, just to not lose it. And you can see how easy it can become to think that all God cares about who we eat with, who we refuse to eat with, that we've rightly identified our enemies and we've posted about that on Facebook, and that we're just keeping things together. That's such a small view of what God wants for us. It's such a small view of what God wants to do in and through our lives. He changes the world through his people. Annie Dillard, who's one of my favorite authors, She wrote the following about Christ and about going to church. And she said this. She said, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we invoke? She's talking about when we pray and we ask the Lord's presence to be with us, as we do every time we have a call to worship, right? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we invoke? Or as I suspect, she says, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return, end quote. There are basically two groups of people in our passage. There's Peter and those who are with him on the front lines, and then there are the Judaizers who are in the hopeless role of holding down the fort. And I pray that God, by his grace, would spare us from living lives of holding down the fort. My prayer for us is that God would draw 
all of us out to where we can never return. Out to that place where we not only worship and serve a big God, but where we're consumed by him, devoured by him. And that the cry of our heart would be, work in me. Work, almighty God, and work through me. Let your glory consume my life and my home and my world. Let your greatness overcome my tiny little view of you. God wants to break in to the forts that we're holding down. He wants to slip off the bit and bridle of predictability and show us, as Abraham Kuyper said, that there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. The salvation of sinners is not an afterthought in God's plan. It's extending mercy to the broken and grace to the ungrateful is deliberate. The Spirit of God, the hound of heaven, pursues us, not for sport, but for love. May he so capture and consume us that we never limit the reach of his grace, but instead that we marvel at it understanding that it reaches far enough to take a hold of us and to wake us from the terrible nightmare of wanting uneventful lives, giving us instead a passion to be used by him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for passages of scripture like this that show us a church in the process of trying to understand the application of grace. That we see Peter learning, open to having his paradigms changed because of the reach of your mercy and grace. Father, I thank you for the way that you worked in the home of Cornelius because because I'm a Gentile. Uh, I'm a person to whom the gospel has made its way uh, through the power of your spirit, through the resurrection of your son. And Lord, I, I know that, that we're tempted so often to try to just play a conservative hand in life, to try to maintain things, to try to hold down the fort, to try to make sure uh, that our lives are more or less uneventful. In fact, we would even often ascribe not much happening as, as a sign of you being good to us. And yet, Lord, none of us have escaped that in the last couple of years. You've upset everything. You've, you've turned everything upside down with, with the pandemic. Everybody has had to change. Everybody has had to bend. Uh, everybody has had to adapt. We have had to walk through other kinds of suffering and loss and difficulty with this in play at the same time, which has even exacerbated those things. And Lord... It feels to me like one of the things, one of the gifts that you're giving us through this pandemic is prying our fingers off of the hold that we have on an attempt to control. Would you liberate us from being people who are trying to keep things calm and under control and open our minds and hearts 
to the idea, even the desire, that you may be wanting to do exceedingly more than all that we ask or think. And then give us the courage and the humility to trust you as you lead us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.